You're listening to the Business for Good podcast, the show where you'll hear inspirational stories about companies making money by solving some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and I'm glad you've joined us. Welcome, friend, to episode 112 of the Business for Good podcast. It is great to have you with us, especially after such a frankly awesome episode 111 with Jason Matheny. We got a lot of good feedback on the conversation from listeners with Jason about his journey from launching the movement for cultivated meat in the United States to working on national security in the Biden White House to now being CEO of the Rand Corporation. If you didn't hear the conversation with Jason, definitely go back and listen, but Do that only after listening to this episode with another heavy hitter, the CEO of Corn Foods. That's Q-U-O-R-N. If you've been listening to this podcast for some time, you probably already know that I am a huge believer in the power of fungi to help save the world. While most alt-meat today is made from plants, the fungi kingdom offers enormous potential to recreate the meat experience without animals in ways that are truly astonishing. In fact, I am such a fan of fungi fermentation that I have a new talk that just came out, which you can see on the TED website. That's just TED.com all about the power of fungi and how they can help slash humanity's reliance on animals for food. I hope you'll go check out the talk, which again is just at ted.com, and we'll include, show no- uh, we'll include that in the show notes of this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com as well. So it is with great enthusiasm that I present to you our next podcast guest to you, Marco Bertaca, CEO of Corn Foods, by far the largest mycoprotein manufacturer on the planet. There are several dozen startups, including one that I co-founded, laboring to try to scale mycelium fermentation to a point where it can start making a dent in the demand for animal-based meat. One company, though, has been doing this already for decades. You got it corn foods. While most alt meat is made from pea, soy, wheat, or some combination of those three crops, corn dominates the portion of the market made from mycelium, controlling more than 99% of the mycoprotein-based alternative protein sector. Partner with companies like KFC, corn is the number one alt meat brand in the European Union, even though it is still a smaller player here in the U.S., that may be changing soon, however. In this conversation, we hear from Corn's CEO about where the company's been and where it's going, including its plans in the United States. He reveals which fungi protein startup Corn recently invested in, whether Corn intends to build its own fermentation assets in the United States, when the company intends to remove all of the egg whites from its products, and why he thinks Corn seems better suited as a chicken alternative than beef. Interestingly, he also claims that Corn is already competing on cost with some chicken products today. I was impressed by Marco's humility in this interview, including when he's talking about where he thinks corn has come up short in some of its expansion plans. Interestingly, he and I also chat about why he felt it was important for him when starting as CEO of the company four years ago to work for weeks undercover as a factory worker in a corn production facility before getting behind his executive computer. The job, Marco claims, has been very gratifying for him, noting that he's been married to someone who never eats meat and that he's become someone who eats meat only once per month. Marco even says that his children are more proud of him today than ever before because of his work to create a more sustainable food system via corn foods. I think you'll appreciate that sentiment even more after listening to this interview with the man at the helm of the fungi fermentation revolution. Enjoy. Marco, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. It's great to see you and great to be here, Paul. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. I can assure you, I am a very long time corn consumer. I have, I actually think I'm like, if you were, if you had a term for people like super corn consumers or something, like I, I eat it on a regular basis and have for a, a very long time. So let me first just start out by saying I appreciate the work that you're doing because it literally feeds me. Fantastic. Th- thanks a lot, Paul. Actually, really, really great to hear that. There's, there's some very, very keen consumers out there and, uh, you know, even better to hear that, that I have one in front of me now. <laughs> you do. You do, for sure. Now, you know, you guys are dominant in the EU market. I, I want to get into, you know, I want to get into the history here, but I just want to mention for, you know, for those of you who are American and are listening, corn, which is, of course, Q-U-O-R-N, is dominant in the EU market for plant-based. Marco, am I correct that you're the number one brand of plant-based meat in the in the in Europe? That is correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And not, not so much in the US. Obviously, the US is a larger market for plant-based meat, but I know, Marco, that you're trying to change that and we're going to get all into that. And I'm really looking forward to to hearing more about those plans. But let me just first say, you know, like a lot of people, they think of plant-based meat as these newer companies, right? They think about Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. But corn is like the OG in this space. It goes back decades. And I I just want you to tell people this story about how corn got started and what it is, because it's not really technically plant-based at all. It's fungi-based. So just tell us the story about how this all came to be. Look, really keen to tell you also, because the, the story of corn is somehow what brought me here in the first place, because I, I also didn't know a lot about it until three and a half years ago, where I, I met the, the current owner of Corn and told me everything about how, how it all started in the 60s, actually. And it's all coming from the vision of, of a man of those days, I would call it a real industrialist, who is Lord Rank, who already at that time saw that the world would face a massive crisis, a massive risk of running out of food. And he had capabilities in both bakery and other industrial sectors. And he saw that by finding a solution and finding the ability to transform what was at that time really available, which is carbohydrates, into into protein, that was a, that was that was a dream that he had, and uh, and so he he, he just went and, and looked for different microbes around the world and in different places, and then his scientists through his knowledge over the way to to do that, and uh, and you know I, I'm, of course I'm summarizing a long long story because it, it took them about thirty years to do something that would become commercially viable because at the beginning it was just an exploration, an exploration into into let's say t- technological ex- exploring something that they didn't know if it worked and that's what i find fascinating so they, they knew that they wanted to resolve the problem of of protein in the world they had an idea about how to do it they knew some technologies but they required belief investment and 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 the persistence really you know we we, we think about our days are, are, are difficult now but in in those days finding people that would be prepared to continue to put investment into something that was not proven was incredible. So, you know, 35 years later, they found a way to transform this uh, through fermentation. So basically, by fermenting this microbe and feeding it with, with glucose, they developed this, this, this protein that was the, containing a lot of, of positive elements into it. And, and that is how corn was born. Okay, Marco, it's funny you mentioned the investors because I was thinking about Imagine going to investors today and telling them, I want you to invest, but there will be no ROI for 35 years. 
<laughs> you know, and, and many of them won't be alive by the time that that you start seeing some of the returns. So they must have had some pretty some pretty patient and uh, and interesting investors back then for the company. It's it's incredible. You mentioned that you know I've been, <laughs> it's something that I think about lately, and and I've been reflecting on the fact that you know for thirty five years this company didn't make any money, right? So and, and now Quorn since they they discovered the how to be commercially viable and how to make protein and be present in the market, Quorn has become at that stage and is still nowadays one of the very few very profitable companies in, in the space. But now you were asking me about what about those 35 years? And I, I, I think there's an element of finding somebody that really, really believes in what you're trying to achieve. It's, it's not just a matter of money or a matter of having a business model. At the beginning, you don't have a business model. You're just exploring, right? So some of the questions sometimes that venture capitalists ask are you know, very difficult to answer. Sometimes the science is not ready yet, but you really believe that something is going to happen. So having having the, the – I even call it luck at some stage, you know, finding someone that really, really believes in your passion, in your determination, and that is – prepared to stay next to you and 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 takes the journey with you. I think that was fundamental at that time. I think it's even more important now. Yeah, it's a it's an excellent point. And I'm glad you mentioned profitability. You know, it's interesting, you know, nearly none of these companies are profitable right now, like Impossible Foods or or Beyond or the other ones. They're they're all losing money and you know they can still attract capital to keep their operations going. But corn is obviously a much more mature business. In fact, it you know, it was acquired back in twenty fifteen for eight hundred and thirty one million US dollars, which is one of the larger plant-based meat, actually, a bit for not for plant-based milk, but for plant-based meat, I presume that's by far the largest acquisition of all time. Would you say that's correct? It, it is correct. Yeah. And this is where we actually introduced, if you think about this business, has, has been moving on from believers to believers. And the last one is uh, is Sosanto, who is uh, who is the owner of the company from 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 the Philippine Mondanese. He's a, he's a gentleman that uh, you know started his own companies and then turned himself into understanding more and more about nutrition, wanted to have a big impact in the world because to some extent the nutrition that he's providing the Philippine he recognizes not is not possible to to be sustained everywhere in the world, you know, noodles, and he's trying to, to turn that into a, a healthy business. But he saw in Quon the possibility to have an impact on a much bigger picture. And so he believed in it. He, he decided to, to go for it. The business was already profitable at that time. And I think the essence is, of course, we ferment our own protein, and and that's a big benefit because again I, I only joined the business three years ago so I cannot I cannot claim any any of the of the discoveries of the past but the fact that we ferment our own protein gives us a, a very very big advantage compared to some of the companies that have to, to 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 buy and transform the product through a number of processes. Yeah, I hear you on that. I mean, you know, you're not <clears throat> relying on, you know, the vagaries of pea protein production, for example. Although I guess in some respects you are relying on wheat protein for the glucose, but you still true. have yeah. you, you know, you still do have a lot more control o- over the system since you are essentially generating your own product as opposed to just taking other ingredients off the shelf. So, you know, Monday Nissan, you mentioned this is the acquirer who bought the company in 2015 for again 831 million dollars. They announced 
announced about a year or so ago that they were going to pump in $355 million, $355 million US dollars to expand corn's, corn's presence in the United States. And so I'm wondering, like, how is that going? It's obviously an enormous amount of money. You know, like we, we think it's a big deal when we hear about some fermentation startup getting a, a $10 million investment or even a $100 million investment and eyes pop open. But $355 million to expand corn in the US, how is it going so far, Marco? Yeah, look, the so the, the big IPO that the Mondanese did in the Philippines was in fact targeted to expand the capacity of corn. And I, I still remember where two and a half years ago, our overall category is growing at 20, 25%, 30%, a big growth everywhere. And at that time, we really needed an injection of, of capital because we wanted to build a new fermenter. We wanted to go in different channels. We wanted to grow both in the US and in other areas like QSR with some of the big global customers. So what we've done, we've done quite some significant investment in, in the US. You know, we went for a, let's say we decided to invest money from the marketing perspective into a partnership with Drew Barrymore that has really helped us to increase our awareness overall. We invested in the new route to market. We opened a food service division. We also opened a new innovation center. So clearly a lot in particular in the US, and but not only there, because also in the UK, we were the number one. We've been the number one for a number of years, but we were really challenged by a number of newcomers into, into the market. So Really stepping up on some of the fundamentals like marketing presence, new product development, and so on has been has been important for us. On the on the how is it going? Look, we I have to I have to be be very transparent that we have three key strategic pillars. Let's call it the one is to remain number one and to strengthen our position in the UK. That is going really well. We're growing market share quarter on quarter. Grow our food service in European, sorry, food service and QSR presence in the world. That is also going very well. Our growth in the US is not really going according to the plans that I had. You know, we've invested a lot, but the, the market in the US has not given us, you know, it's probably an element of market, an element of us, it's not giving us the the returns that, that we were hoping. And I think it's a combination of, of different aspects We've certainly grown in our awareness, in our presence, etc. But the, the the current time, uh, I think, in the in the US uh, is is challenging from the price perception of of the meat alternative business. So we find that the consumers in the current times are kind of going back to some of the basic and uh, nutritional elements, basic carbs, and so the the category is taking a bit of a hit. So. In the in this environment, we're actually being a little bit more cautious about accelerating the investment further. So we've done a, a big investment in the last year and a half. We now, I don't want to call it pausing, but we we are strengthening what we've done until now, until the category turns back and we're ready to to grow further in the post post challenging times that we see currently. Yeah, I do think that the inflationary environment is making people less willing to spend more for these products that cost, generally speaking, more than commodity animal-based meat. And so it's a, you know it's a difficult thing. But I guess fortunately for you, most of your products are frozen, and the frozen alternative meats category has done better than the refrigerated lately. Yeah, so it, it is absolutely true. And look, one of the one of the plans that we that we always had and that we still have, we just need to 
to see maybe to wait a little bit better days is of course we we currently export the the vast majority if not everything that we do that we sell in the US from the UK and this is not is not ideal you know so we are always wanted to establish our facilities our factories in the US and and this is what I really hope is going to be our next step of of our growth in the, in the country so you so you would be building fermentation systems in the US also. I can I can share you know when I when I arrived there, we have done an investment in the UK but then we were really planning to to invest in the US because I think the best way for us is really to have fermentation in the country where as close as possible to the to the consumers. We're also mm-hmm. currently developing something that I hope I can share a little bit more with you in the future we are we are developing a new technology that will enable us to transport our microprotein ambient stable. And that is that is going to change the game for us and for microprotein in general, because as you know, at the moment, microprotein needs to stay at a chilled stage or a frozen stage, and that will give us a short shelf life while we're developing some technology that is in the second half of this year. I'll, I'll, I'll share a bit more about this, but that's going to really change the game. Great. So I, I presume it would still be sh- sold to the consumer, chilled or frozen, but you just would be able to ship the actual product from Europe to the U.S. or other where you know, ambient yeah, state. Yeah, correct. Okay. I think it's about yeah. sharing, you know, shipping yeah. the, the ingredient and then finalizing the ingredient in the local markets. And that's why it can be shipped everywhere around yeah. the world. And then locally, then you finish off the product. Right. Interesting. Okay. I, I do look forward to hearing more about that. But and rather than talking about the future, I just want to go just to your past a little bit, Marco. So you mentioned that you joined Corn three and a half years ago. You had worked as an executive at Unilever and other food companies, including in the dairy industry. But I just want to ask, I read the story about you, which seemed pretty incredible, almost like reality TV. It said that when you started as CEO, that you started for the first couple of weeks just by working as a factory laborer, as like an undercover boss sort of way. Nobody knew that you were the CEO of the company. You were just working on the line. So why did you do that? And what was the experience like? Was it valuable for you? What did you learn? Tell me about it. Yeah, look, this is. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm smiling because this is something I've 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 always done. You know, I'm my my background is I I grew up in in factories. I, I learned I'm an engineer, not a very good engineer, I have to say. But I I joined those big companies and and I thought that the the best way to understand how a company works is to go to go into details and and normally a place to go where companies are producing products is just go in the factory and understand how it works. So also what I've done here, I we have three plants in the UK and without telling anyone, I I just did some shifts in, in those factories. So you, you don't go and visit, you just go and 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 and, and are next to the operator and then you do what they're doing. They you they train you to do things and and, and then you learn I think there's a lot of lot of reasons why I do it. First it's, it's really helping me to understand. The second, you understand about the products, you understand about technology, but you understand about the people and the culture that you have around you. Is that the question that people ask, the, you, how you see them behaving, how how do they interact with each other, how the bosses interact with the people on the shop floor is, is a big, big sign of, uh, of the culture that, that is in the place. And and, and now what, what also creates, it creates incredible stories because now I can go in every factory. I know the people by their name and they know me by my name and we can interact. I know about their kids. I know who, who's, you know, who's doing what. I know. So th- there's this, you, you become, yeah, you become much more than just a colleague. You know, you become, 
uh, you know, you be, you be, there's an element of friendship that is also developed when you when you clean a bean with a high pressure pump on a shop floor. That that that's what I find really helpful. Did you find that your acumen at performing these jobs was comparable to those who were doing it, or did you find there was a steep learning curve for you to do it? I absolutely, you know, that's a very interesting point. You you really find out your limit, right? So. When there's a manual operation that needs to to happen on the line, you just find yourselves thinking, how how do they do it? I'm, I'm, there's so much time that I need to to learn about it, and then that so both from the manual perspective and the, and also you you appreciate the skills and the the expertise. I I am extremely fortunate because I have colleagues in my company that have been here for 35, 40 years. And, uh, and the, the enthusiasm and the, not just the expertise, but the passion that they have is, is something I've never seen before. So it's, I feel extremely privileged. And the, the, best, the best thing that I could do was, was to go in, into that. Also, because if you think about what happened is that three months after I did that, I just got completely locked down in an in a Airbnb where, because the pandemic struck. So I was actually running the company from, from a computer behind. So without having done that, I wouldn't even know the people that I was working with. So it was a good timing and, and, and full of learnings for me. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's pretty cool. I hope there are some photos or videos of you working the line with high pressure pumps that, that might go on the wall in some type of a, a historical document of Corn's history here. But, you know, sp- speaking of Corn's history, actually, Marco, you know, the company seems to at first, from what I can ascertain, was really intended for the vegetarian and the vegan market. Obviously, now you're seeking to expand that and to reach the so-called flexitarians, a much wider audience of people who do eat meat but want to enjoy more alternative meats or maybe more plant-based food. You have this partnership with KFC. You're really focusing on chicken here. So let me first ask you, why chicken? Do you see a path to price parity with chicken? You know, It seems like beef is so much more expensive than chicken. A lot of these companies like to focus on that because um, it's easier to compete on price. Not that many of them are competing on price, but in the future, they hope to be. But chicken is even cheaper. So there's a lot of reasons to go after chicken. What are yours? Yeah. So we have a a very fundamental reason, which is intrinsic to our technology. We develop mycoprotein. And mycoprotein has not only all the nine essential amino acids, but it's got this high fee, this structure of of the fibers that are really, really able to replicate the texture and the bite of chicken. So I think instead of trying to compete in the world of burgers, where everyone nowadays chops some things together, put them back together and, and, and sell a burger with different level of success, I think the ability of replicating the chicken texture and the bite into that is, is really proper and, and very well fitting to the corn technology. So that, that's one element. And the other element, I think, is also that when we when we recognize that we're that we are good at something, we we also know that the chicken market globally is is enormous. So we prefer to become the best one at, at one thing, and 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 continue to perfect to, to to improve the technology in that direction. Now, having said that, we have about hundred different products, so it's not only chicken that we do, but uh, you refer to KFC that. The, the, these KFC has been our partner of choice and we've been their partner of choice really around the world. And the reason is exactly the product performance. You know, one, one of the reasons why somehow the category is a little bit finding a moment of reflection at the moment is that the product that uh, all the different companies come up with 
do not fully reflect what the consumer are expecting. And that's why having the recognition from KFC and our partnership with them on chicken and the fact that we are rolling out in country after country in the world is really, in my view, a demonstration that where we decided to focus is working for our technology and is delivering the best product that is available on the market and is recognized by the chicken experts like KFC. I definitely think they are the chicken experts. I'll grant them that. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned you have these hundred different SKUs. I mean, you know, my wife and I love the corn fish sticks, which are not a chicken product, but I'll tell you are absolutely delicious. They're fantastic. I happen to be one of the vegan lines as well. So uh, the spicy chicken patties, though, which are also vegan are fantastic. I absolutely love them. And it leads me to this question. What like what is the plan, if any, on the egg white issue? So I know, you know, you guys are really focused on trying to create a more sustainable protein that is less reliant on animals. Obviously, many of the SKUs you have do have eggs in them. So here's my question. You know, you do have vegan lines, the fish sticks, the chicken patties, and so on. Is there a plan to move toward more of those vegan lines? You know, you look at the other companies in the space and possible beyond, like all of them don't use animal products at all. What's your plan, if any, on this, Marco? Yeah, look, I so the, the executive summary is potentially simple. The reality is much more complicated. Let me start with the, with what is simple. We have a clear commitment to transform all our products by 2030 into vegan, as long as they taste at least as good as our vegetarian product. Okay. Uh, now, this as long as is what makes it complicated. And the reason is that egg and microprotein have an incredible relationship and a, and a very complex one because the, the, the quality of the binding and the quality of uh, the texture that egg and microprotein are able to create are not easily to, to replicate. And this is why we have now dedicated a team to go into the deep technology and science of what the, a product apparently simple like egg is able to create with microprotein. It's, it's really not simple at all. So we stay with our ambition. And in fact, we, we, we launch a number of, a growing number of vegan products. But the reality is also that some of our vegetarian products have an incredible success with some of our consumers. So the the reality is also that I, I always take, take the following perspective. Number one, I want corn to be seen as a, an extremely good and tasty alternative protein product, which I'm, I'm very careful not to... I've chosen a different path. I'm not going against meat or in any shape or form. I'm not saying that meat is going to disappear from our planet. That, that is not what I'm saying. And the reason why I say that, because you, you may be aware, I lived and, and traveled, I mainly lived actually in a number of different countries, and I know that meat uh, in different cultures around the world has a very different and a very important connotation, even from the social perspective. You know, small villages meet around the, around the fire and they, they make their own... Uh, they have their own tradition, and, and some of them involve meat. So for me, the, the, the key element is reduce industrial farming, eliminate that, therefore reduce the amount of animal protein that we eat, and balance that with healthy, for us, human, and for the planet, alternative protein. So you will never hear me talking about I'm against this one or I'm against that one. I want to offer a healthy choice for us and the planet. And that, that's why vegan, vegetarian, uh, and flexitarian are all, are all different consumers. And, and they, they can 
find something that they would benefit from when they encounter corn in the shelves. Indeed. Although I, I have read that you are, while you are not a vegetarian yourself, that you eat very little meat. Is that so? I, I, you've that apparently said you eat meat <laughs> yeah, about look, once a month, right? Is that is that the case? Yeah, we go into family issues here, Paul. The, the truth is the following: so my wife stopped eating meat about seven years ago, okay. and and this is where our our family conversation started. So she's she was uh, she was reading books and understanding more about the impact that the meat has on our world, and it's not just meat, but how we how we how we develop meat, how we feed meat, how we we cultivate our environment, how much of the land in our planet is dedicated to meat farming. And to animal animal growing and and she kept she started to educate me in fact you know and she started to, to to train me on that and I became more and more aware also because at that time I was working for a dairy company <laughs> so you can imagine the type of conversation that were happening in our family and 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 by listening by learning I I've and then by chance actually I I was contacted by 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 Harry who. Who offered me this possibility in Quorn, and I started to read and learn much more about it. And as exactly as you say now, I've I've been you know I, I normally eat Quorn about probably three three to four times a, a week. I eat meat once a month, but probably less. I am still a little bit on cheese and on fish. Uh, but I try to be as selective as I can. You know, if I mm-hmm. if I if I know where the products are coming from, I try to go to, yeah, to proximity. But it's not always yeah. easy. Well, I'll tell you, Marco. You know, I, I have I have been plant based for the last thirty years, and I always tell people the same thing: if you're eating meat once a month, you're basically plant based. You know, if everybody in the world did that, there would we would not need to go through all the burdens that we are going through to try to satiate the meat tooth that people have. So I, I don't I don't think you should beat yourself up over that. Um, I, I do want to ask you. There's a, a bit of a, I don't know if I'll go so far as to say controversy regarding the terminology in the fungi protein space, but, you know, there is the new fungi protein association of which corn is a member and the group, the companies in that space don't always call it the same thing. You know, corn is using mycoprotein. Many of the other companies use mycoprotein, but then you have some companies that are saying nutritional fungi protein, or some companies that are saying mycelium, or even one company that's saying mushroom root protein, which is odd since it's not mushrooms that they're using, but you know, there's different terminologies here. And I presume you're sticking with mycoprotein no matter what, but I wonder if you have thoughts about these other terms that are now being used to describe what some of the other fungi protein companies are utilizing in the space. You know, Nature's Find is now on store shelves in Whole Foods. And you look at that and, you know, despite the fact that they too are using the genus Fusarium like corn does, they don't call it mycoprotein, they call it nutritional fungi protein. So do you think there should be some type of standardization here to help consumers or do you think it doesn't really matter? It's a very good question, Paul. Now, let me share with you my perspective, which of course is is only three and a half years in this space. So I always take myself with a pinch of salt because I'm, I'm, I'm learning so much every day. And so the, what makes me extremely excited and what I think really, really matters is that in the last few years, three to five years actually, maybe less, we now have about 37 at last, my last count companies that have decided to invest into fungi fermented, fungi fermentation, mycoprotein, 
into this new space of fermented fungi because they recognize that uses much lower resources of the planet, provides very, very good nutrition, is light on the human, is light on the planet, and is actually building on the history of scientific evidence that corn has developed during the 35 years. So for me, anyone within this space that is exploring new things, that is able to convince the consumers and tell the story to the consumer, is playing to the strength of the overall subcategory that I call food guy fermentation. So I'm really not, not only not bothered and I don't have a black and white view on the on the how it should be called. What I'm really, really keen on is that we as a group uh, clarify between ourselves, to the industry, to the consumers and to the, our customers, the power of what fungi can give and, and the fact that this could represent an extremely natural, you know, like part of the old fermentation that has been there for hundreds of years and, and the positive impact that this can have on our planet and our world. I think that's the most important thing and the fact that we team up, team up on that and, you know, I, I don't just say that, Paul. I was I was in Expo West a few weeks ago. I met a number of what could be called competitors. And I said, the first thing I said, guys, if you find that can be useful for you to come and visit Kuon in our, I'm very open to open our facility, come in, see. And if there's something you can see that is useful for you, please do. So us collaborating is much more important than having, you know, even losing too much time in how do we call it, should we call it one way or many other ways. I, I think let's leverage our power and, and let's see what we can do to really change the, the current direction of the food chain. Well, it's very magnanimous of you for sure. And I, I'm sure that's highly appreciated. And, you know, corn has been such a leader in the space for such a long time. There is a very wide gap between you and everybody else. So the companies that you're talking about, you know, they are are not even producing a million pounds yet, right, of product. Whereas you posted on LinkedIn recently, Marco, that corn's capacity is about 67,000 tons of mycoprotein per year, which is about 134 million pounds of mycoprotein. So, you know, you think about like the mycoprotein market today, I mean, it's 99% plus, more than 99% is corn still today. I'm sure you hope that that continues. You know, we'll see. I think that, the question I have for you is, you know, what other companies are trying to do They're, you know, they like try to, you know, boast to investors, they're running a 1000 liter fermentation or a 10,000 liter fermentation, maybe even tens of thousands of liters of fermentation. But you guys, I mean, I don't know, it must be in the millions by now, if you take all of the fermenters that you have, it must be in the millions, right? And so I guess, you know, one question I have is, with the scale that you have, it's such a dramatic industrial scale that you have compared to those of the rest of the companies in this space, which are, again, you know, co all collectively less than 1% of the mycoprotein market today. You know, what are the types of prices that you can achieve, right? What's, you know, what's the selling point for corn? What's the cogs on producing the mycoprotein? Like, how do you think about now that you're scaled, like it's probably hard to bring costs down that dramatically. So how do you think about that from being, you know, the, the largest player by far in the space? Yeah. So f first of all, I, you know, I'm, I always played probably the opposite of, of many companies that are out there. I, I always encourage us to say, to be very, very humble and to acknowledge that, yes, we have the scale, 
And the truth is that other other players will get there sooner or later. And so always stay focused on what can we do better, what can we learn by others. Uh, you, you may have seen that we recently decided to invest in, this very, in a very nice uh, startup actually in the U.S., where we believe we can help them, but it's also true that we we can also learn from them. So, in in my personal which, view, which, you know, I'm, sorry, Marco, sorry to interrupt you. No, I didn't see the investment. Which company did you invest in? Yeah, so it's a company called the Prime Roots. Oh, okay, yes, yeah, cool company. Yeah, and. Yeah, and uh, yeah, very, very nice. And uh, I think that the perspective that I have is always size uh, is, is only is only telling you a lot about your past, but not mm. about your future. So <laughs> uh, that's a good line. Uh, yeah, Prime Roots is a great company. We've had their CEO, Kimberly Lee, on this show before, and we'll link in the show notes to this podcast. We'll link her her latest episode with us. But they're a, they're a cool company. Yeah. I really enjoy eating their deli slices. Absolutely, and they, they they do they do a great work, and and they're discovering something that is that is really interesting, and we will welcome them here at our facilities, and and we if we you know whatever we can share, we will share. So f- for me, really really important is that the in order to be able to drive enormous changes in the food chain that are absolutely required, it's much more important to to share and to help others within the same space to create a bigger movement. And, and that's what I'm, I'm really, really keen to drive. And I think I am in a good position to be able to drive it because, as you said, as I shared with you before, opening the doors to what we currently do, I think, is, is the best demonstration of, our, of how serious we are on that. Going back to your point about the cost and the, and the, the parity, which I think is, is a very important step in particular in the current environment. I was sharing with investors just a couple of weeks ago that when I look at, let's take a reference point, a market reference point where I know the price point extremely well, which is the UK. Currently, we are on the market with the chicken pieces product at just under six GB pound per kilo, while a very similar product still from Tesco actually sometimes it's even private label, is higher than six pounds, just above six pounds per kilo. So, Hmm. Uh, the, the truth is that we already have the possibility to achieve a price parity in a, against a chicken sold in supermarket and also in a mince product as well. So, of course, in order to be able to do that around the world, we need to find a way to produce our microprotein or to ship our microprotein in a much more effective way than we're doing at the moment. That's why we mm-hmm. have an incredibly strong position in the UK, but not yet in some of the markets where we are. Got it, which goes back to the shelf stability and ambient temperature shipping point. Speaking of doing things better than we do today, you have commented many times in other interviews, Marco, about the desire to find a different substrate for your fermentation rather than just wheat-based glucose. And you've said you want to investigate the use of agricultural byproducts so you could have an even lighter footprint and maybe even lower cost of goods to use. So what are some of the more promising explorations for you? You know, right now you feed your fusarium microbes the glucose from wheat. What else might you think would be a diet that they may enjoy? Look, it's, a, it's, a, it's in my view, is a really, really fundamental. This is one of the things that can change change the game completely because we have, if you think about how much of our agriculture is going to feed animals for animal protein production, 
And then what we are what we are left with is the leftover in the fields, and a lot of those leftovers still contain a lot of sugars, a lot of carbohydrates. If we would be able to convert those into a feedstock for a microprotein, or when we are able to do that, you can Im- then imagine that we would really be able to transform waste into into protein. And we 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 hear more and more exploration around this uh, this topic, and uh, the. What I can share with you is that we have engaged with a number of, of universities in the in the space. We are establishing some partnerships also with deep science groups that are really doing scientific exploration on the on this conversion from waste to to protein. And on top of that, one other element that we are spending resources and we we hope to have some some interesting success soon is there is always a certain sub product that is the result of fermentation. And you could talk about water, which is extracted, which still contain protein. You can talk about other elements of the, of, of the process and the ability to convert those products into something that is useful and is natural, that can be used as a, as, as a flavor, flavoring or natural, natural salt is, is, is super important. We, we have some, we, so we have a number of streams that we're working on. Of course, Everything that we do is, is, is big because of the size of our fermenters. So that's why it's yeah, something that I'm really, really excited about for the next, the next few years, in fact, because it's not going to be, this is going to be a bit of a marathon. It's not, it's not a sprint. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it is kind of like the holy grail. If you can find some agricultural byproduct exactly. that can be up- upcycled into high, high quality mycoproteins, it, it would be, as you said, game changing, truly, for yeah. sure. I want to ask you a question about your children, Marco, because you mentioned, uh, I've heard you mention before that when you started working at Corn, you have said, maybe jokingly, I'm not sure, that your children were proud of you for the first time in years. So what do you mean by that? Like, why, why are they proud of you? Well, but Paul, I, I I never I never really joke when I talk about my kids. I've uh, I'm, I'm really I've really developed. I'm very sensitive to that. Is uh, look, I I I'm born in Italy and I started to travel. I left Italy 23 years ago and I went around the, the world of many many countries and moved my family and my kids have been with me. So the five of us have uh, we are a very very small enclosed group. And so, and we've always the, been the five around. of you. The five, five of you meaning your wife and three said, children. Exactly, my wife and and the three kids. I, keep, I still call them kids, even if they are twenty six, twenty four, and twenty two. So, but they're still my kids, of course. Two boys and a little a little girl. And when when I was in the Philippines, in fact, they, you know, I had a career with a number of big, big, sizable companies, and they understand the, they understood a bit what I was what I was doing. But they were never that close to the products that I was selling, if you want. And that was, how can I describe? It was a bit, you know, I was in bakery, I was selling sugar, I was in, in dairy, I was selling, I was selling the powder. And, and then they, I came back and I said, look, we, you know, what about this? I've been interviewed with this company called Quorn. And then my, my daughter came to me with this with this Instagram posting of, of one of her friends in the US, actually. And she and they were talking about corn because this girl is, is vegetarian, so she was eating this product. So she knew much more about corn than any of the product that I ever did in the past. And that, that's why I had this 
this conversation in the house where everybody was really excited. And for the first time in a while, they were excited about my job, which they haven't been for some time. And they and when I told them, yeah, because they told me I, I can change the world with this if I do this and I do that. And they and I, I saw that, you know, I, I became a topic of conversation. And for those who are listening and they went through the teenage phase of their kids, I moved from being very, very important when they were younger to not, not really not really being very relevant when they were through the teenage phase. And, and at this stage, they're now back. They still ask me questions. They still want to know what I'm doing. You know, they hold me accountable, which is I find fascinating. So my, my daughter, if she doesn't like a product, you know, she's going to tell me. I can tell you this. So they are very, very involved. And for me, I, the dream I, I always had as a, as a human being is if I can do something that provides for my family that I really, really love and that I find as a passion, it, you know, I'm the luckiest man on, on the planet. And I think I'm extremely fortunate because I've got the combination of the two. That's really nice. I'm glad that your kids are, are rooting for you here at Corn. I, I know that you've had a, a very varied background in terms of the companies that you've worked for. So, you know, whether it was working at Unilever or working in, in the dairy field or now working in the alternative meat field, I presume, Marco, that you've picked up a, a few things or two and that many resources have been useful for you. And so let me ask you, if there's somebody listening right now and they're thinking, oh, I really love what Marco is doing, I admire his trajectory or whatever they're thinking, are there any resources that you think have been useful for you, Marco, in your own journey as an executive to now being the CEO of Corn that you would recommend for others? Any books or any other things that have been useful for you that you think, hey, check this out. It was useful for me. Mm, this is a very good question. And I think the maybe maybe just a, a couple of, of reflections from, from my side. And the first one is when we talk about books and we talk about benchmarking, we talk about comparing ourselves with others. One of the learnings that, I, that, I've, that I've embraced and I always like to share is we tend to benchmark when we compare ourselves with something that has already been done. So... While there's always value in that, when you sit at the forefront of developing something that is not there, is not available out there, benchmarking has its own limitation. So one of the biggest things that I, I could I could share is the maybe two is this element of curiosity and this element of my wife calls it the power of listening. Stop watching videos, reading stuff, just get, get out there, meet people and listen to them. Are they consumers? Are they customers? Are they normal people? Are they people that you have no idea what they're doing? But this element of being very, very curious, not rely on something that has already been done, but rely on something that is existing out there that is not, not many people have seen, I think is, is fascinating. We, we tend to only learn when we listen, while we learn nothing at all when we say something. And I, I find it very, very, very important. And the other one, which I, I thought has, has served me well, is take any opportunity that passes in front of you. <laughs> in a, if it is you're invited in something and you don't know what it is, you, you, somebody's connecting you or somebody's offering you something to go and visit a place that you never just just. Take any opportunity in front, you will learn 
so much from anything that is thrown at you in, in that direction. So I think these are a few of the reflections that I would like to share. Very useful. You know, sadly for you, you are the one speaking, not listening now, but there are lots of people who are listening to you. There are lots of people who are listening to you right now. And so they may be thinking, you know, geez, I, I want to get into this game as well. Are there any companies that you wish existed, Marco, that somebody listening right now might pursue? Any technologies or companies that don't yet exist that you think you would do a great deal of good in the world if you would pursue this idea? Absolutely, yes, is this element. You you actually, uh, you mentioned that earlier, or you triggered me on that earlier. There is this ability to transform waste into something that is that is useful. And I, any form of it, I really think a lot is currently being done in the in this recycling, in the in the upscaling, in the elimination of you know the certification of pollution, but the the identify something in that can transform food waste and and what we tend to waste into into good protein and for and a healthy nutrition for humans. I think. We, this is the area where I would, every time I talk to my kids and their friends, I always trigger them on this. And so that's what I would love to see much more out there. People that come up with what, what is not existing, which is a transformation of waste into healthy nutrition. I couldn't agree with you more, Marco. I, you know, this is a passion of mine as well and something that my own company, The Better Miko, has vigorously pursued and something of, of great interest to us too, I can assure you. And you were very kind. You've always been very kind to us. And I, I hope that we get to meet up sometime either in California or in the UK. But for now, let me just say thank you. I appreciate the leadership that Corn has shown for decades now. I love eating the products and I hope to be getting more of the Totally Vegan ones in the future as well. So tell your team, let's move on that by 2030, maybe sooner. We'll see. But for now, Marco, just want to say thanks so much. And we will be rooting for Corn's continued success, both in Europe, the US and elsewhere. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you did, please let the world know. Leave the show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends. Who knows? Maybe you'll inspire one of them to be in the business of doing good themselves.